Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning. I um, just want to thank you for uh, being asked to come here today and speak on behalf of uh, the EMS workers. You know, we've got, Pac and I have three sons, um, Mateo, Noe, and one who we haven't met yet. Um, Mateo is uh, six years old, and he is extremely curious. He asks a lot of questions. Um, And on this particular day, that was no exception, when Teo was in the back seat and I was driving, and he asked a fairly deep question. He said, Daddy, do we still have crime So I'm driving, going, how do I answer this? Um, As a father, as a Christian, as a cop. So I kind of did all three, a little blend. So I said, uh, yeah, you know, like like sometimes people make bad decisions. And, uh, you know, you make bad decisions sometimes. I make bad decisions sometimes. And we need to be held accountable for those. Sometimes you get time out. um, And sometimes daddy puts people on time out. and, uh, but we love them, you know, kind of moving to the Christian side of things. You know, we love them, and Jesus loves them. We're called to love them, um, you know, regardless of, of what they do. And, you know, this kind of went on and on. You know, fathers have a, have a tendency to sort of drag on and on. No offense, Dad. Um, and um, anyway, so I kind of paused and said, you know, does that make sense? And Teo sat there for a moment, not saying anything. He said, No. Do we or do we not still have Amazon Prime? That's a true story, and he's sitting between my parents. Our talk today is going to center around the idea of being lost, of being disoriented, how that can happen, and how God brings us back. I'm also going to speak a little on what it's like to be a first responder, both the ups and the downs. And if you miss anything or find yourself snoozing at the back, let me save you the punchline. Disorientation happens when you run towards something in our life, perhaps in ourselves, ought not idolize. And the journey to something more profound happens when we pivot and orient ourselves towards the only one that we ought to idolize. That's it. Sermon done. Mic dropped. If you have that, you've got it. But in order to illustrate this, I'd like to share with you three stories. And the the first begins like this. I'm sitting in the common area of one of the Ontario police dorms just outside of London, Ontario, at Ontario Police College. I'm watching the Ferguson riots on the news. Myself and and the other cadets just watched in relative silence, not understanding how something over a thousand kilometers away in a country not of our own would kickstart a series of events that would forever change our lives as the reality of soon-to-be police officers. And while it was unsettling to watch, the reality was that I had navigated too many challenging waters to change the course of where I was at this point. I had found little success in the three years of applying to various internal positions within my previous employment, as well as government jobs and various police agencies. Nada. 
Every rejection letter I kept and pinned on my bulletin board at home and soaked up every detail I could in post-interview phone calls in an attempt to find ways to better myself. More volunteer hours, longer workout days, additional courses. Every failure began, became a lesson in how to never make the same mistake again. But it was a grind. And this grind wore against my confidence that I was ever going to make it wherever it was. When I got the call for the policing interview, I was a nervous wreck, but not nearly as nervous as I was when I was in the interview, which consisted of, and I'm sure as others here can tell you, four and a half hours of poking and prodding into e nearly every aspect of who I was as a person. What was your greatest mistake? Oh, I don't know. Agreeing to a four and a half hour interview with these guys? But after what seemed like an eternity, I was told that I had successfully passed the largest hurdle in the process. I was over the moon, and I couldn't help but feel a little embarrassed when I realized the administrative assistant at the YRP recruitment building saw me pull it a yes as I walked out. Keep it cool, Joel. Keep it cool. Finally, I had found it. It was a small, and it's still a delicate flicker, but it was there. The light of success in the darkness of the woods, I was still well within. And when I saw it, I walked, crawled, clawed, and ran. Not only towards it, but away. Away from my bulletin board of rejection letters and away from my failure. This was my time. And I wasn't going to stop moving until I had made it. And we all lived happily ever after. Right? Well, not so much. Fast forward to three years later, I'm standing in the backyard of my parents' house at Holland Landing, and I watch my only child play on their jungle gym. My face is expressionless, but my mother's is filled with enough worry for the both of us. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? She asked anxiously. The truth was that I hadn't felt anything in longer than I could remember, and my memories seemed all jumbled to begin with. Here was the truth. I've lost my purpose, Mom. I don't know where to go from here. In my tunnel vision, focused on success, on being impressive, on showing myself that I was more than my failures and rejection letters, I had blinded myself to the reality that when one walks, crawls, claws, and runs towards something, he almost invariably doesn't know when he's gone too far. When he's run to a place he does not recognize as unsafe and precarious, but ought to to a place of no return. I'd like to tell you a different story, this one much older and far more interesting than mine. It comes from a holy book known as the Bible. And the Bible is broken into two major libraries, the first being the Old Testament and the subsequent being the New Testament. In the former, there is a book called Exodus, the plot of which we believe to have taken place sometime in the 16th century BC. And for those of us who aren't quite archaeologists or historians or have a hard time placing where that is, think of a time even before COVID. That old. In this book, there are stories about a group of people known as the Hebrews, also known as the Israelites, the ancient ancestors of the Jewish people today. The Hebrews are people with whom God has chosen to give a special treaty or an agreement known in the Bible as a covenant. The covenant was this that the Hebrews were to obey God's voice and he would be their God and they would be his people. 
It's fairly straightforward. Listen to God, and he will adopt you as his own. Now, at some point, these Hebrews leave what would be modern-day Israel, Jordan, and Palestine, and they leave for Egypt, for one of them had gained favor with the highest office in the land, the religious and political leader at the time known as the Pharaoh. But as the sands of time pass, and the years become decades, and decades become centuries, leaders come and leaders go. And before long, the new Pharaoh becomes afraid of these Hebrews who have swelled in numbers and suspects that they might join the ranks of Egypt's enemies if war were to break out. So, a plan is hatched. Step one is to press them into servitude, forcing them to build cities like Pithom, Heliopolis, and Ramesses all along the eastern branches of the Nile Delta that, before it flows into the Mediterranean Sea. Step two is to have Israelite midwives kill all male Israelite newborns as they are delivered onto the birthing stones of the ancient world. Birthing stones. Google that one when you have a chance, not for the sermon. Step three is to then tell the general Egyptian public to throw every Israelite newborn into the Nile, and this seems to do the trick. Remember our three cities? Pithom, Heliopolis, and Ramesses? The last of these is where our story really begins. Ramesses is better known outside the Bible as Avaris, once a capital for the Hyksos kings who were perhaps remnants of the Hebrew rulers or at least friendly with them in Egypt. But with the Hebrews now under the whip and sickle of the Egyptians, it is now served as a, now serves as a vacationing city for the rich and famous with large mansions bordering the Nile, causing some Egyptologists to have coined it the Venice of Egypt. If Venice was much, much, much older. Of course, like any vacationing city, there are the touristy parts, and there are the misfortune underbelly that's a bit off the resort. And it's in this underbelly where an unnamed Hebrew slave girl gives birth to a boy. She hides him from the Egyptian population until he's three months old and still without a name, perhaps because she knew what was to come. She knew that if this child were to be given any chance at all, he could not stay with her lest he be found by the Egyptian population and thrown in the crocodile-infested waters of the Nile. So she separates from him, placing him in a papyrus basket, waterproofed with tar and pitch, and placed it on the shoreline of the Nile, where the occupants of one of these mansions regularly bathe. But this wasn't just any mansion. It was the vacationing home of the family of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, slaughterer of Hebrews. Can you imagine intentionally leaving your three-month-old child with a family that is behind the systemic infanticide of your kin? On this particular day, the basket was found by Pharaoh's daughter, who takes great empathy on this Hebrew child and adopts him into her family as her own. And she names him Moshe, which has a root word in to draw out, as in, I drew him out of the water. But interestingly, and perhaps unwittingly, on behalf of the royal princess, share some similarities with the word son in Egyptian and deliverer in Hebrew. Moshe, an Egyptian son, a Hebrew deliverer. After about 40 years of the good life living amongst the rich and famous of Egypt's elite, 
Moshe decides to go for a walkabout in town. And he happens upon an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now, we don't know much about this altercation, but Moshe is apparently moved, moved enough that he takes upon himself to strike down the Egyptian, killing him on the spot, and subsequently burying him in the sand. This is where things go from bad to worse. While he believes at first that he's gotten away with his deed, he soon finds out that there are whispers in the streets and that those whispers turn to rumors and those rumors have reached the ears of the Pharaoh who now wants Moshe dead. From all appearances, Moshe's life has been a success up until now. Sure, it started a bit rocky. In a, water t- in a waterproof tar basket, born a crime. But then he quickly had an upturn. And the adopted son of the most powerful man in the land remained on top for 40 years. He had made it. But now things have gone badly, and Moshe can either face the Pharaoh or he can do what he ultimately does, which is to say he walks, crawls, claws, and runs away from the idea that he could be anything but a success. So he stumbles. He stumbles his way across the Egyptian desert as a wanted man, making his way to a foreign land just beyond its borders, Midian, what we now know as Saudi Arabia. And just like that, Moshe, the prince of Egypt, becomes a man with no title, no direction, and no purpose. I joined policing for all the right reasons, to help people, to better my community, to make a difference, to serve. But when I first put the uniform on and looked at myself in the mirror, looked out of place, as if the weight of Saul's armor were atop my shoulders. But as time went on, I learned how to walk like a first responder, talk like a first responder, act like a first responder, and I simultaneously unlearned much of me. As I settled into this new surrounding, a part of me began to slip away as if I were selling my soul at an auction to the highest bidder as long as that bidder were paying the currency of my success. I convinced myself that the parts of me that were unique or made me see things a little differently than that of my colleagues were unnecessary and warranted to be cut out lest they get in the way of what really mattered. But the uniform was not the only major change that happened around that time. Exactly one month prior to the date of receiving my badge, in the same 24 hours, I became a father, and Pac and I moved into our first home. Nothing like the stress of moving to induce labor, am I right? Unpacking during the day, sleepless newborn nights on days off, surviving night shifts on days on. With each call, my world view began to change. What I saw as a realistic outlook, most around me would call cynical. I chalked it up to people not understanding the soot and soil that lay beneath their clean little lives. It seemed darker, colder, bleaker than ever before, and this was confirmed every time a news person would show a titillating soundbite of police altercation and claim malicious motivations without having context, ever having done a ride-along, or let alone donned a uniform for a single day. The gospel that I grew up with no longer had a place in my life. I would still consider myself a Christian, still read my Bible, still attend church, still pray, 
but when Robin, who may or may not be here today, um, one of a pack of my close friends, asked me during a small group, how do you find that the gospel intertwines with your work? How do you love people the way Christ did while still doing your job? My answer was as short as it was blunt. It doesn't, and I don't. The gospel of Jesus Christ had become something that I needed to protect for the people of God from those who I determined would never understand it. Drug dealers, pimps, gun runners, impaired drivers careening into families. Christ might still love them, but I didn't. And my job was to keep the gospel and his people from ever seeing the things that I did. When exhaustion set in as the new normal and health issues intending to act as warning signs began to set off, I ignored them. Headaches, insomnia, chest pains, permanent eye damage, regular nightmares, brain scans leading to neurologist appointments, panic attacks, temporary vision loss, regular trips to emerge. I treated them as mere distractions to my own ambitions. When our marriage began to show cracks, I treated it as one more problem that I needed to solve, eventually. When we mysteriously couldn't get pregnant for a second time, I couldn't relate to Pax's disappointment. And when we lost our only daughter to miscarriage, I no longer felt anything at all, and Pax grieved alone. So I had a choice. Face the reality that things had gone awry and stop avoiding those warning signs, or do what I ultimately did. Which is to say, walk, crawl, claw, and run away from the, the idea that I could be anything but a success. So Moshe stumbles up to a well, right? Whereby he meets a pretty girl that he instantly likes. And as the American philosopher Beyonce once said, if you like it, then you got to put a ring on it. <laughs> and put a ring on it, he did. But what's interesting is that when Moshe is found by the Pharaoh's daughter as a baby, he's instantly recognized as being of the Hebrew race. But here, when a Midianite lady talks of her newfound love to her father, she tells her father of an Egyptian. It was as if Moshe was still determined to hold on to that which he had left behind. Upon his wife giving birth to their first son, he names him a name that means foreigner, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land, and indeed the life he was about to live would be foreign to him. He went from the alabaster stone pillars of the temples and the beautifully adorned mansions within the Venice of Europe to the desert sands of Midian, whereby he would learn the craft of herding sheep with a rugged stick. Foreigner in a foreign land. And that's where the story ends. An Egyptian murderer becomes a Midianite shepherd and settles down with a lovely family. Make a great Hallmark movie come Christmas time. Or at least that's where Moshe's story ends, as does Joel's. But this is also where our third begins. Here, God enters, and he enters in a big way. Walking, crawling, clawing, and running towards his people and towards their plight. And it all begins when Moshe is now 80 years old. And for those of you who say, I'm too old for that, or you can't teach an old dog new tricks, or I'm too far gone now, this one's for you. One day, while shepherding in the mountains, Moshe hears God's voice through a bush. 
which does not burn up, and yet which is engulfed in fire and fury. This voice beckons him, come and remove his sandals, for he is standing on holy ground. And there Moshe knew, trembling and terrified, a new journey unlike anything else he experienced was about to begin. God tells Moshe that he has needed to return to Egypt to liberate the Hebrew people from 430 years of enslavement. No big deal. Moshe's response to God upon his request goes something like this. Who am I (laughs) that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? What if they don't believe me or, or listen to my voice? What do they say? The Lord hasn't appeared to you. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow in speech and in tongue. Please, Lord God, send somebody else. This is a broken man. A man who has spent half his life running from his fears and taking comfort in the peripheral. And now the creator of the universe appears to him in flame and tells him to change the course of human history. A history that covers nearly half a millennium. And God's answer is as simple as it is true. Moshe, it's not about you. It's not about you. But through you, I will do things beyond your wildest imaginations. I will stretch out my hands and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. I will do that, and I have chosen to do this through you. And one might be forgiven if you were to ask the question, this guy? Are you sure? I mean, maybe 40 years ago, when he was an Egyptian prince, a man of power and influence, this guy's a has-been, a washed-up shepherd who lives in northern Saudi Arabia with no one and nothing to his name, and I'm pretty sure he just said he's not much of a public speaker. I mean, it seems ill-advised, to say the least. But let's not forget, this isn't Moshe's story anymore. He's no longer the main character. This is God's story. He is in control, and it is his power and might that will be seen performing ten plagues in Egypt, bringing about pillars of smoke and fire, parting the Red Sea, and raining manna from heaven. This is his show. And just like that, Moshe picks up his staff, restraps his sandals, and is given new purpose. But why not come sooner, right? I mean, why leave Moshe in the Midian desert for 40 years before reaching out? Why wait till this guy's an elderly man to do his bidding? It's an impossible question, because we don't know the mind of God. But I have a theory. I believe that God knew Moshe's heart, and he knew that there needed to be a period of time in which his pride could be diminished enough for Moshe to hear God calling out to him. When Moshe first arrived in the Midian desert, he was seen as a son of Egypt. But 40 years later, perhaps enough time had passed for his own ambition to dissipate just enough for God to use him to become a deliverer of his people. Look at him, Joel. I can still hear my mother's voice responding. She was, of course, referring to my eldest son playing in the, front, in the front of us in her backyard. He needs you, and for him, you'll need to find your purpose. I had hit rock bottom, and I hated it. I wanted to throw away my gun and badge and find work doing anything else. Even firefighting. 
That's for you, baby. I still went to work, but I had little left to give. Ambitions gone, pride obliterated, and it was here and only here in this place that I was finally ready to walk, crawl, claw, and run my way back to Christ and his purpose for my life. I sought out advice anywhere I could. Friends, family, ex-cops, pastors, peer sport counselors, all of whom worked, God worked through to call me back to his purposes. The Holy Spirit was finally ready to do his work in me, breaking, mending, renewing. This wasn't my story anymore. I no longer was the main character. It wasn't about me. This was God's story. A funny thing happened. The more I began to see people as people and to ask them questions about how they arrived at where they did, I began to adopt the view that the gospel is not something to be penned and protected like domesticated cattle. It is the wild and untamable and unbridled answer to the question of what is my purpose while simultaneously answering the questions of how did I get here and how do I get out? Friends, if we have walked away from church today with the understanding that God and his calling is something that is a nice idea that can only be applied by nice people to nice people in nice places, then we might as well stay home next Sunday because we have missed the boat. You see, we can stop an assault or a theft and we can handcuff an offender. We can bring him before the courts. But let's be real, we can't change his heart. The gospel of Christ is the answer to the murderer that burns with wrath inside his soul, the drug addict who wants nothing else but to escape his pain, or the sex trade worker who lacks her sense of self. The light of Christ shines brightest not when it's in an already illuminated place, but rather in a place of darkness and bitterness and disorientation and pain. As first responders, police, fire, EMS, we have a unique front row seat to this darkness, whereby our mission is actually no different from any other member of the church. Bring light to the darkness, bring peace to the chaos, bring deliverance to the enslaved. In order for us to be effective in that, we cannot live in the first two stories, but rather in the third and in the third alone. This is his story. It's not ours. And it's in this story that it's revealed to us that God the Father will do anything it takes in order that we are with him. He will walk, he will crawl, he will claw, and he will run when we are unable to. In closing, I would like to say this. If you are a spouse of a first responder, let me take a moment and thank you for who you are, what you put up with, and how blessed we are to have you. We are the warrior, you are the warriors that we depend on when the night gets dark and the wind gets cold. We love you. Thank you. Those are our first responders or spouses of first responders, whether physically joining us or on live stream. <clears throat> and, we, and, and you feel disoriented, like you're in a tailspin at 30,000 feet, reach out. We're all in this together, and you're not too far gone. And if you're a first responder and you're feeling good, then hallelujah. But let's keep one thing in mind, which is written by the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his famous book, The Gulag Archipelago. 
The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Mine, yours, theirs. There is no us and them. So when you're stopping that next car on the road, or you're going to the next fire or EMS call, keep in mind, this is their worst day. Be patient and life-bringing. You might just save a life in more ways than one. And if you are someone here who has no ties to the first responder community, then I want to thank you for hosting a service like this. It is an important reminder that we are appreciated and we appreciate you. And the next time that you're stopped on the road by an officer who's in not the brightest of moods, may or may not happen, be patient. You are not going to know what, he or she, what call he or she just came from, how little sleep they're working with, or what battles they've just been through. And if I could ask, pray for them. We need it, all of us. Heck, ask to pray for them as they hand you the ticket if you want to make them feel really guilty. Stay safe. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.